The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die, or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are, and you do. No my hari mai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora, and thank you for joining me for Episode 4 of Season 2 of Death Walker's Guide to Life. Coming up on today's show, I'll be speaking with Sylvia Bauer and her mother Dawn Jones about planning for a natural death and looking at the question, what is a natural death? Dawn's husband and Sylvia's father, Emery Jones, put together a natural burial guide towards the end of his life. Dawn, who is now in her 90s, has recently updated it. Before I korero or speak with Sylvia and Dawn, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. Today I'd like to introduce you to a stunning essay titled Wild Darkness by Alaskan writer and marine biologist Eva Solutis. I stumbled across this essay in my online travels last year and for some unknown or perhaps forgotten reason, printed off a hard copy, which is something I rarely do. Then it got lost in a pile of receipts and press clippings for about a year. I stumbled across it again just the other day and popped it on top of my to-be-read pile, suspecting that since it appeared to explore the concept of a natural death, it might be perfect for today's show. The essay opens with Solitas writing about wild salmon who return upstream to their own birthplace to spawn and then die. Even though she is a whale expert and not a salmon expert, Solitas and her partner made frequent hiking trips to the Prince William Sound in the Gulf of Alaska. Hikes are our sanity, she writes. We hike because we love this rainy, lush, turbulent, breathing, expiring, windy place as much as we love our work with whales. But her 26th field trip is different to every trip before. This time she is witnessing the salmon through different eyes, the eyes of someone whose own demise is no longer an abstraction. Solitas has just learned that her breast cancer has returned and spread to her right lung. It's incurable. Her time in hospital, she writes, taught her that certain experiences cut us off entirely from nature, or seem to. She knows that as long as we inhabit bodies of flesh, blood and bone, we are wholly inside nature. 
but her time in hospital taught her to fear something more than death. And I quote, An existence that depends upon technology, machines, sterile procedures, hoses, pumps, chemicals, easing out one kind of pain, only to free a psychic other. Then she begins to sense, then hope, then trust that when the time comes, her body will know exactly what to do. She writes, I envied those salmon their raw deaths, not for a moment separated by nature. Later in the essay, after agreeing with Bill McKibben's thesis in his seminal 1989 book, The End of Nature, that nothing on earth is apart from human tinkering, she writes, My greatest fear is a variation of McKibben's revelation, that the end of nature means the end of natural death, the end of a natural return to earthly elements. And now I'm just going to read a little bit directly from the essay, which I think really speaks to that theme. People don't talk about dying. People rarely witness the dying of their fellow humans, much less the animals they eat. Special people minister to the dying. Sometimes people in their travail fly overseas and pay strangers to hasten their dying. We have no charnel grounds, only cemeteries shaded by big trees mown and tended by groundskeepers. Or we're handed the ashes of our loved ones in sealed urns or handsome boxes to disperse at sea or from mountain peaks. Facing death in a death-phobic culture is lonely, but in wild places like Prince William Sound or the woods and slows behind my house, it is different. The salmon dying in this stream tell me I am not alone. Wild Darkness was published in Orion magazine in March 2014 and is still available to read online. Eva Solitas died two years after its publication in 2016. Her obituary reads, Renowned Alaskan writer and marine biologist Eva Lucia Solitas, age 52, was carried into her beloved eternal wilderness on the spirited wings of dear friend and mentor Celia Hunter's dog sled in the early afternoon of Saturday, January 16, 2016, from her home in Homer, Alaska. It's unclear whether the dog sled was physical or metaphorical, but given the subject of her essay, it was no surprise to learn that she played a key role in planning for the disposal of her body, and this included weaving her own basket coffin with her family, which was later used for her ashes. During her life, Salitas also published five books. Her final book, Becoming Earth, was published posthumously in 2016, although a few advanced copies arrived just before she died and she managed to sign them for friends and family. In this book, according to the publisher's blurb, Salitas revels in the nostalgia and secret pleasures that come from knowing life is fleeting. I can't wait to read it. You're listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Coming up, I'll be talking with Sylvia Bauer and Dawn Jones. Now it's time for me to welcome my guests on today's show, Sylvia Bauer and her mother, Dawn Jones, who recently gathered for the annual Mortueka Natural Burial Park get-together, Gardening Bee, Celebration of Life and Potluck Picnic Lunch. Sylvia and Dawn have organised this annual celebration for the past eight years since Emery Jones' burial there in 2014. Kia ora, Sylvia and Dawn, and welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Kia ora, Kiri. Nice to be here. Hi. Hi. Dawn, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about your late husband, Emery? Mm, yes, he was a character. 
He was self-made from the age of four when his father died and his mother virtually died and uh, he was cast out to relatives who grudgingly took care of him. But very soon he was in the position of carer for his mother when she finally got out of hospital, almost mortally wounded. Yes, so uh, he was grown up before he was grown up. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a... um and a really rough start to life. Very, mm. very indeed, mm. yes. Mm. But fortunately, into a fairly loving family, it wasn't as though he died of some terrible abuse. Uh, his mother loved him and his father did, but they both just about mm. kicked the bucket before mm. he had a chance to develop mm. uh, into a personality. And tell us when and where you met. We met in a college in California, in San Jose, California. Uh, He claims that I saved him um, in that uh, he was not knowing quite how to get into the college and what the rules and regulations were so he turned to me as a stranger and I told him what I where he could go (laughs) so to say and uh, and the the friendship developed from there yeah around our student days how old were you do you remember I was about 18 at the time okay Okay. He was uh, six years older than I. And then I believe you went on to have, firstly, five children before Sylvia came along as as number six. Well, in a way, uh, four children were ours, what okay. we called natural born. Uh, but we had two adopted children, one of whom is still alive. And... Uh, it made it for a very different family, uh, racially and culturally. And speaks a lot about both of you as, as parents, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, we made our mistakes, that's <laughs> for sure. Sylvia, <laughs> <laughs> so what, what sort of dad was Emery? Tell me about him as a dad. Oh, what a lovely question. Gosh, that makes me feel emotional first up, Kerry. Um, he was um, a very fun, charismatic, funny, kind, loving, warm, eclectic man. And he was also born with more than his share of talents. I think he was an excellent sportsman, especially with tennis. Um, He was a child prodigy with music, so he's um, very into jazz. He played um, especially piano and vibraphone. Um, And he helped to invent the frisbee, actually, back in the day, in the 1940s. and, you know, he did things like he was grinding his own peanut butter before, you know, before people like Picks, you know, did his wonderful business. And Dad was always like he was a, a cutting-edge person. He was always on the far cutting edge of absolutely everything he did, including in his death. He was always thinking outside of the box. He was, like I said, very eccentric. And 
Yeah, so, but he never wanted to make money out of any of the things that he did. You know, he could have been a world-class jazz musician, but he didn't want to um, because he saw that those jazz musicians from the 20s and 30s and 40s were often drug addicted and, um, you know, their families were falling apart and he wanted to have a really, you know, good, wholesome lifestyle for us kids. And so, um, yeah, life was always an adventure with Dad. He was a, a crazy character and, and he was just... He just loved me so much and I loved him and um, you know that goes for all the kids in our family and he could be incredibly frustrating as well, <laughs> really frustrating. Um, you know he used to do things like he had a big old hippie bus that he that we would tour around New Zealand in and um, he would just pick up kind of random hitchhikers and bring them home for dinner and you know um, they'd end up staying for a month and actually that's my brother-in-law. Um, he came home and met my sister and the rest is history. They're all together after all that time so yeah life was always an adventure with dad excellent I, this is a really strange question perhaps but was he the sort of man to keep a bucket list or was he more let's do everything now you know live for the present um, a bucket list that means what you want to do before you die yeah so but it's okay. often you know in the in the in the far in the in the future, it's not sort of. I'm not going to do it now. It's my bucket list is. It seems to be aspirational, <laughs> in a way. No, he or was, was he more seize the day? Let's do it now. I think it was a seize seize the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, very often when um, you know, Dad would be the one who would be. Um, kind of in party mode a lot you know his version of a party like playing jazz or making food or you know telling jokes um and that's kind of how he lived his life he certainly worked very hard as well but he made time to do those things every day mm-hmm. and the relationships being top of his list yeah yeah I think so you know in his in his own strange way you know there were times when he would just kind of go off and do his thing for months at a time especially when we were grown and we wouldn't you know, necessarily know to where he was or what he was doing or with whom yeah so he he was a bit random as well so relationships would come and go with him quite a bit okay great so let's jump in to the topic of the conversation today and when did dad emery decide that he wanted a natural burial and in do you know the thinking behind it Mm. That would have been about 2007 when he finally decided that he, one day he just packed up his music that he had been playing in the Riverside Cafe, entertaining people, and uh, suddenly occurred to him that he was old, (laughs) that he didn't want to do it anymore. Life had changed for him. Mm. I, I think he was in his was he in his eighties then his um, early eighties I guess so yeah, yeah. About, about that late seventies yeah. early eighties yeah mm-hmm. yeah and did he talk about at the time when he made that he thought okay it's time did he start talking about how he want the circumstances of how he wanted to leave this life he did he felt that that was one of those parts of life that anyone can choose to make what they want to which would be of course characteristic of his whole life as we've mentioned Uh, he didn't want to follow the rules (laughs) 
<laughs> to say the least. <laughs> he was always stirring things up. And one thing that he wanted to do is um, when he, around that time, around 2007, he said that he would like to have a kind of a, I don't know what he called it, but it was like a pre-death party. So instead of having a funeral, which he did not want a funeral and he did not even want it to be called a funeral um, but he thought well you know why do people have funerals and everyone turns up after they're dead what's the point of that let's celebrate now together while I still can he never actually pulled that off he certainly thought about it and he started organizing it but he was actually already getting quite old and sick and it was he was in a lot of pain and it was kind of too much for him so he ended up setting that aside um, but it was certainly another aspiration of his so it was a couple of years later that he wrote and released a guide called The End of Life Arrangements for Natural Burial. And it, in many ways, it specifies with almost military precision his own end of life wishes. Right up front in the guide, he defines a natural burial and he defines it like this as legally burying the dead simply directly and biodegradably without any embalming fluid, toxic glues or other poisons. And as you mentioned, he also said celebration of mutual friendships are best shown before the person dies or can be in memoriam well after the burial, if so desired. But I'll come back to that. So first I'd like to talk about embalming first. So what was his, tell me about his objection to the embalming process. Well, he felt that it was uh, letting toxins into the environment, which we already have too many of, and uh, that death is a part of life. Uh, It's a natural event, and therefore it should be kept as much that way as is possible. Mm. And also Dad had a real uh, thing about, I think, what he referred to as the death industry. He didn't want, he was very um, atheist and anti-capitalist, you know, much more socialist. And that's why Mum and Dad moved to New Zealand away from the United States, which was doing a really different thing. Um, and New Zealand was very socialist, especially back in the 50s when they moved here. And so it's it's just a calm, an, another example of his overall ethos that we can do it ourselves. In Australia, the practice of embalming is fairly uncommon unless it's strictly required by law or, you know, sometimes funeral directors will advise it if there's going to be an extended or delayed funeral. However, the vast majority of New Zealanders are still embalmed. Something like 70% in the late, by the late 70s, about 70% of bodies were embalmed and it is up around 90% by the turn of this century, this millennium. Mm. And, and, you know, the purpose of embalming is to preserve the body after death and interrupt, this is like the technical term, interrupt the process of decay. That was the last thing Emery wanted, wasn't it? He wanted to just be back into, into the earth and, and uh, back to nature. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah he, he um, you know, it's just all environmental and that was the way that he lived his life and he just thought, you know, um, formaldehyde and all the rest of it was just terrible things to lead into the soil and he liked because or into the air or into the air exactly and it, you know he felt that the idea of if you know for <laughs> this is kind of an intense way to put it but you know let the worms crawl in and out let them do their job and because of the way he was because he was atheist and he was not at all into ritual either 
the whole idea of his body being in the ground was not a scary one for him at all. In fact, almost quite the opposite. He was almost too far the other direction of like, ah, just chuck me in the hole and it'll be done and, you know, it'll be fine. Um, yeah, and, you know, he did. He wanted hand tools used and all those sorts of things. So it just go, it's just another example of how he um, saw things in a very practical way and also wanted to um, keep the earth healthy. Mm. And it was probably good timing for him too because he was thinking this way towards the end of his life, just around the same time that the natural burial park movement sort of got up and running and particularly here in the South Island. I did a bit of research and the first natural burial park in Britain was in established in 92. So they were a couple of good decade, almost two decades ahead of New Zealand and similar timing. New Zealand and Australia have similar timing. And of course it was our local DIY funeral supporter, Linda Hanna, who went over to the UK and on a Winston Churchill Fellowship and did lots of research about the natural burial parks over mm-hmm. there and came back and had been in fact advocating to Tasman District Council for since the beginning of the 2000s for a natural burial park here in Motueka and that became a reality in 2010 which is about the time that Emery's guide to the natural burial guide came out yes so that was good timing wasn't it it was yeah Yeah, and he was a real advocate of that um, burial park and in fact we met with (coughs) Beryl Wilkes from Tasman District Council who oversees that type of thing here Um, she was so kind and she came down and met us at the natural burial park before anybody was buried there so as a family we went down she showed us dad was like literally on his last legs like he needed two knee operations and wasn't going to have them so he was really hobbling around but it was quite a special and poignant moment to be down with the, there with him, knowing that, you know, who knew when, but not too far away, Dad would be lying there in that ground and we would be visiting him, you know, not alive, not above mm. ground anymore. And um, so actually we thought that he would be, and he thought that he would be the first person buried there, and he was a real supporter of that, of what Linda was doing, and also of Beryl, who um, was just so incredibly helpful to Linda and Dad and everyone else with that process. You know, she helped to get that really moving after quite a lot of work by Linda that was um, slow, going very slowly, the wheels of um, administration and bureaucracy and all that. And um, yeah, so we thought he would be the first person buried there. Actually, he was the 11th because he ended up hanging on quite a lot longer than we expected and then he wanted to, in all honesty. Mm. Mm. It was 2014 that he died, yeah. Mm. What's some, some of the other characteristics of natural burial that you know from your own experience that's different from more traditional burials <laughs> in cemeteries? Oh, I can, I can put up my hand on that one. Um, one facet of that natural uh, Im- non-embalming uh, process was that he felt that he should have only organic clothing on uh, at the time that he was put into the grave. And uh, this shows you how despite our wishes and our plans, they don't always work out. And in this way, uh, he had to go into the hospice a few days before he actually died. And uh, the day afternoon that he died uh, I didn't say anything about 
natural clothing, which we had at home for him, kind of waiting for the time. But uh, they put synthetic, a very nice, uh, up-to-date, uh, fashionable pair of PJs onto him uh, to be buried in. So <laughs> his little plan of, of being... Um, you know, true to his ideals didn't work out because other people didn't know about it or necessarily care. <laughs> and he also found out in his uh, research that by law, you don't have to have anything on. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to be in a casket. You can be bare as long as the rules are of respect. I understand with the natural burial park that one key thing is how deep the body is buried. Mm. So yeah. that in a normal cemetery, it's, you know, the old six foot under deep down. But is it true that in a natural burial park, they're buried much closer? Yeah, three feet. And um, that's to allow, you know, like I said, the worms and the organic matter to, to do their job and to break the body down. Um, and also to feed the trees or plants that have been planted on the grave. And actually, interestingly, just early on, so there's a rule in New Zealand that like dad wanted us to dig his grave by hand with he wanted us to do that rather with shovels and actually um there's a, a law i'm not sure if it's throughout the whole country i'm guessing so but anyway here in tasman district that um the family is not allowed to do that and that's for health and safety reasons you know they probably don't want people falling in the hole and twisting their ankles i'm just guessing about that um but we were allowed to fill it in afterwards so they had the um the council grave diggers come and this was I don't believe this was at dad's burial it was actually a friend of ours who died um, a few months before that and they had done the standard six feet even though it was in the natural burial park because this was all quite new and they probably quite weren't quite used to the fact that um, this was going to be a lot shallower so we came along for this burial and it was six feet deep and we're like oh right okay so we just all all chucked dirt back in the grave to get it to the three feet and then we put Colin's casket in um or oh, yeah his casket I think it was yeah so that was just like you know it's the details it's like what mum was talking about the pajamas and that dad had things written out in obsessive military precision in his in his guidelines I mean really he did obsess about that document he didn't he wasn't capable of a whole lot before he died because he was getting so unwell but that thing he poured and poured and poured over it and even had it professionally edited um, by my husband who's an editor um, you know he really went to next level and he wanted it to be available to other people um, but at some point I was thinking to myself, okay, Dad, give it up already. Okay, like we've got everything nailed right down here. But on the other hand, you know, the devil is in the details. And and especially when you've got kind of a whole new way of doing things, graves do get dug too deep. And, you know, you do forget to tell the staff, oh, you know, we've got our own clothes to put on the body. And Dad even had things like, you know, you cut the tags out of clothing because quite often tags are synthetic, and the but the cotton can be organic, you know, things like that. There is a lot to think about. And no wonder people <clears throat> want to pay a funeral director to do it because it's, it's icky, it can be icky, you know, you're dealing with somebody that you love. Um, and there's a heap of stuff to remember when your brain is going a little bit crazy with stress and sadness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and one other thing there in regard to the uh, grave digging, um, Motueka has a cemetery which is built on sand. And uh, 
people that are novices in grave digging and filling in wouldn't necessarily understand the how they can fall in yeah. and take somebody that wasn't prepared yeah. for it with them. So that was a consideration on the council's part, which was very sensible. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about the team structure in the guide. So I at the beginning, he outlines, you know, how many people and who needs to be involved in what, what stage. I guess because he ended up having to go to hospice, that that probably didn't play out exactly as he had imagined. But the idea of having a whole team effort is, is intriguing, so I'd like to hear a bit more about that. Mm. Well, that is something that has been true through history as far as we understand it, that it's the family and close friends that come in this hour of great change and respectfully and carefully uh, dress the body, bathe the body, anoint the body, and uh, finish off the process that was begun. Uh, Allow evacuation of wastes in a respectful, dignified fashion, which does happen. Yeah, well put, Mum. Mm. Yeah, and I think that team approach is important because, you know, it's not, this stuff is not necessarily for the faint of heart and, um, you know, everyone has a place. So we have a friend who um, is a doctor and she was happy, she was happy to do that for Dad. Um, you know, I, I don't, I really dislike dead bodies. I know that I'm not alone in that. Um, and it's also my dad you're talking about, you know. So I I was dead and I had some really good conversations where he kind of wanted me to take the lead on the funeral. I was like, you know, well, actually, maybe not me, Dad, because um, I'm going to be in shock. I'm going to really be missing you. Um, so my husband ended up doing a lot of that stuff because he was just one step further you know, removed from that and perhaps not as squeamish about death as I am. But I think it's really important to remember that um, it's it's um, it's like a collaborative process because with Dad, he had his wishes, but luckily, you know, I felt strong enough to say to him, you know, Dad, actually, you know, perhaps some of this stuff will be a bit traumatising for people. Like, he just wanted to be tipped off the stretcher into the ground, you know, like, that's really full on for, for people especially you know in this day and age when we're just getting used to all this do-it-yourself burial so stuff and I said you know by then dad you're going to be dead it's not so much about you anymore like we do want to respect you but we've also got to think about all the people that are going to want to be there because you're you're their friends and so like, I don't care who comes you know whoever wants to come can come but they don't have to come you know he didn't, he didn't want it like that um but we also had to temper his kind of extremism I think a little bit um and I think that that's another important thing to remember about these these burial guidelines is that, you know, he wanted these to be used. So I am happy to send them to anybody who's listening who would like to have them. But just know it's a guideline. So you look through and you go, actually, that's not for me. That's too full on. That's not what I want. Or I don't want to do that to, you know, for my mother or whatever. And then it becomes a conversation and you do it your way. It doesn't have to be dad's extremist way or, you know, straight down the middle. And just on that note, I would also like to add that um, I really appreciate that there's a lot of um, funeral direction companies who are taking on, you know, a lot of these aspects and helping people to do them. Because fair enough, to be honest, I'm not really that into doing this do-it-yourself. 
I don't think I would ask my own daughter to do that for me. I think that's it is a lot to ask, and I felt that it was a lot to ask. So therefore, there's a range of approaches for anybody who, you know, wants to choose between them. Mm. I think it's wonderful that you were able to express how you felt to your dad about it at the time. Yeah. And and I guess that's the whole purpose of the guide, isn't it? To actually just be there to prompt the conversations so that the conversations can happen when the person's still alive. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So coming back to that wonderful, the several reminders in the guide to keep in mind that celebration of one's life is better done before death. So... Did you honour this wish? Was there a celebration after he died? Or? Uh, no. No, there wasn't. Uh, he died <laughs> actually on Queen's birthday weekend. Oh, wow. He died on the Friday, and he wasn't able to be buried into the ground until the following Tuesday. So he was on ice in our apartment to keep his body from smelling Mm. and uh, rotting uh, during that time interval. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so then uh, when Tuesday came and the hole was ready and so on, um, we took him there uh, in a car, wasn't it a car, not a hearse, and his uh, idea of if it hasn't already been explained, was to keep the cost down as as much as possible. It's not a money-making venture, and that's one reason why he was against commercial commercializing that event in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no celebration afterwards, per Dad's wishes. That was kind of a relief, I guess, because that would be another whole thing for us to organise. Um, and normally a funeral um, director would, would do that part. Um, but what we have done is this annual celebration, and that's what um, that's what Linda suggested, Linda Hannah. Um, she said to me after the funeral, it's a really nice idea in a year to come back and just gather. And so I've just, every year, I just send out a very simple email. I sent it to you this year, Kerry, mm. um, just saying, you know, we're going to be down there. It's very casual. You don't have to RSVP. Come if you want to. It's fine if you can't. Um, we know that our family members will be there. Um, and there, there are always others as well. And we were this, there this time, a friend of ours um, who knew Dad for a very, very long time. Um, she and I got into a conversation, and she was telling me about Jewish grave sites, which... Um, actually they don't from what she told me they don't tend the graves they're often very wild they've got weeds growing on them and you know no doubt the birds and the bees and the butterflies are all around Um, and I had not known that so you know little stories like that come out and you realize oh wow there are so many ways to do it it doesn't have to be perfectly mown yeah so so it's just a lovely time to get together and actually what I've noticed that there's almost always about you know 15 or 20 people there and they come because they really want to because there's no pressure and so that's the celebration for dad and it's every year and I'm just so glad that Linda suggested that because it's become a lovely tradition and it's for the wider community and it's growing yeah and it's growing and it's exactly eight years ago as we're recording this show so it's amazing so when I visited the first natural burial ground in Australia which was in Lismore near Byron Bay I was looking around and I remember going there and it was really really wild in fact it's so wild that you need GPS coordinates to find where your loved one is buried can you describe for our listeners what the Mortuweka 
Natural Burial Park looks like today. You sent two beautiful photos with your invitation of, of the trees you know, mm. with all their beautiful golden autumn leaves. So, yeah, tell us, just tell us a little, paint a visual picture of what it looks like today mm. to finish. I, I will do. And actually, I should probably start with that, Mum, just because mm-hmm. that invitation I sent out, I actually, um, those are not photos of the Motueka uh. Burial Park, but they're close enough that they look like they could be and I, my impression is that that's probably more like what they look like in the UK because there's enormous trees and it's more a park-like setting whereas here in Motueka um, the graves are in lines you can mark them but I think each um, each marker has to be under a certain very small amount like 30 centimetres or 20 centimetres something like that um, they vary quite a little bit you know some of them like dad's one is a, a rock that was carved mum had it done some people have nothing other people may have a cross you know just depends um, so so it looks almost more like a garden lots of native plantings it's supposed to be all native plantings I've actually noticed I was quite surprised mum I don't know if you saw this but there's a couple of graves there now that have quite a few plastic flowers on them that Mm. really surprised me Um, they're probably technically not supposed to have that but on the other hand you know who wants to be a fascist about these things you know we're talking about you know a, a special People's, place to yeah. other people um and their loved ones so you know that's not our area to get into um but yeah <clears throat> native plants they're supposed to be and some of them you know it was quite remarkable to see after eight years that that moniker on on earl's grave is just it's ginormous you know it must be and like it three wasn't meters even high intended to, to be buried in the first place it happened to be growing next to a five finger which his wife uh, intended to put on his grave, but this Monica just loved the soil and it sh- shot yeah. away mm. to almost the height of the ceiling. Here. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Mm. So I think it, overall it will start to feel like quite a native foresty part. Uh, place but at the moment it's almost more like a shrubby garden. I mean, one thing for Dad and I is that. And I actually just did want to talk a little bit more, if you didn't mind, about that grief process. And I was quite concerned before Dad died that I would be incredibly upset, you know, that I was fearful of that. And um, our daughter was about eight at the time that Dad was wanting to go through, you know, he was wanting to die. He was wanting to stop eating and really actively die. And it was a bit hard for him because he loved food so much. So, you know, he'd end up breaking his fast after a while. Damn it, you know, I didn't quite see it through. Um, But he had a sense of humour about it, as he did in, in every respect of his life but so I had a chat with dad before he died and I just said look I'm really going to miss you and I I wish that you wouldn't be so keen to die because I want our daughter to have memories of you you know you're such a cool grandpa Um, and it would be a shame for you to cut it off early kind of thing and you know he listened to that and he heard it and I had my tears and all of that (laughs) Um, but I think because dad and I had a few of those conversations before he died we felt really complete with each other so when he did die I mean obviously like it was surreal and it was weird and it was like oh my gosh my dad's not here on you know with me anymore but I had very, very few tears um, after his death. You know, a couple of very small moments at weird times, but I think it was because he was elderly, he was more than ready to go, and because Dad and I were emotionally complete with one another, and we had ended that. Whereas um, other family members were incredibly cut up when he died, and I can't speculate about why. I can't know for sure, but I can speculate that perhaps that, that relationship had not been completed 
um, before death and then it feels like regret and all of that so yeah I just wanted to add that in there mm, thank you Sylvia one more question and it's a more light hearted one and I just remember this because I asked this of all my guests so what I am doing on the Death Walkers Guide to Life website is I've got a playlist called Farewell Songs so I ask each of my guests on the show to tell me one song that they would like played at their funeral or wake or the celebration of their life or spontaneously performed at the burial. The first song that pops into your mind. How about you, Dawn? What what song well, would you like played? You Came to Me from Out of Nowhere. It's about a 1940s song and it's about life and remembering. Uh, it's not about death, but that's what comes into my mind. I was singing it to her as we came over here. You came to me from out of nowhere, leaving with me with wonderful memories. Beautiful. I suppose that would be it. Mm, thank you, Dawn. And how about you, Sylvia? Yeah, well, um, Mum is just a great lover of music, and actually you've spoken about quite a few songs with me that you would love to have um, sung or listened to. Um, some of it's classical. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other, like, readings about, you know, gardens and so on and so forth, you know, that, that kind of natural aspect. Um, but, yeah, I hadn't heard that one before, so <laughs> interesting. Well... I'm a great lover of um, dancing <laughs> and I don't know that dancing and funerals has traditionally gone together but quite often I think about like these flash mobs and that kind of thing and I just think oh you know I can just imagine you know some excellent dance dance tune um, you know kind of coming out after when everyone's sort of over their whole thing. Um, I can't I can't say what that would be just now and I'm not even sure if it would be appropriate but of course because I love dancing so much that's what always comes up for me first. So you know I'm 47 years old and it feels like all of that's a very long way off so it's pretty hard to say and no I have not planned my death, burial, funeral, any of that yet myself. Mm. If a song comes to mind, let me know afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both very much for joining me today on the show. Mm, You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kerry, for doing this. It's just so important that um, people hear this stuff. So good on you. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been chatting with Sylvia Bauer and Dawn Jones. Now it's time for the final bookend, Death on Screen, and I'm going to keep this one short and sweet in today's show. I just wanted to mention the website, the New Zealand website, naturalburials.co.nz. Since we've been talking a lot about a natural death and a natural burial in today's episode. So naturalburials.co.nz is a directory of all of the natural burial grounds or parks in Aotearoa, New Zealand. There are 12 certified and 7 uncertified parks or grounds on the list. And the website or directory was first formed in uh, 1999. So you can go there and look where your nearest natural burial ground is. If you're listening in Australia, unfortunately, there doesn't appear to be an equivalent national directory Part of being Australian is all those different states and the different ways of doing things. Although there are various somewhat incomplete state directories, the best place to start would be by checking out the Natural Death Care Centre's service directory 
at www.naturaldeathcarecentre.org. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. Fly away. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.